Hey, uh, again, welcome to Faith. My, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. If uh, we have met, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Whether you're here in the room in person, whether you're joining us online today, we are uh, glad to be with you as we are kind of right in the middle of a series on the book of Proverbs that we've been working our way through. We've entitled this series, uh, Life is Hard and It's Harder When We're Stupid. And uh, we've entitled it this way because uh, life is hard enough all on its own, right? And uh, from time to time, we will do foolish things, silly things that make life harder than it needs to be. In fact, in this series, we're just recognizing that every one of us, every day, we make decisions. Decisions that lead to outcomes. Decisions that can make our lives more difficult than they need to be or decisions that could make our lives better than they already are. Decisions that can drive us further from God or decisions that can draw us closer to him. And in this series, we're just recognizing that one of the key factors that determines which side of that equation we will find ourselves on is this thing called wisdom. And so each week we're turning to the book of Proverbs and we're turning to what Proverbs would say about specific areas of our lives. Areas where people are most likely to get tripped up and we're going, hey, what is, what is wisdom speaking to us about this area of our lives and what is wisdom saying about how to get on the right side of the equation? And as we continue this week, this weekend we're talking about the topic of sexuality. So this is your official warning, all right? If you're watching online and you got, you know, a young person in the room with you and you don't want to have the conversation about the message afterwards, you can push pause, you can get them involved in something else, and then you just push play and we'll be right here waiting for you. It's like magic, right? Um, or if you're in the room today and you're like, I, you know, I got a little, little one in the room today, I don't want to answer these questions, or I'm in the room today and I don't want to talk about this at church, we're going to pray and that's going to provide you cover, all right? So we're going to do the Baptist thing where every head's going to be bowed and every eye's going to be closed, right? And then that's the opportunity for you to slip out of the room. Um, but here's the deal. We're going to go there today, and there are a number of reasons why, all right? We're going to go there today because this is a topic the Bible talks about. We're going to go there today because this is an area of life, and as a pastor, I can, I can testify to this, that so many people get tripped up in. And this is something, we're going to go there today because this is a topic that our culture is forever hammering us with about its perspective. And the perspective of our culture does not align with the wisdom of God oftentimes. And so today we're going to take time to just explore what God has said about this area of our lives. So let's pray together. If you need to, you can step out and then we're going to get into things. Father, just as we take time today to discuss this, for some people, um, this topic is one of anticipation and excitement. For some people, this is an area of life where they just, they, they know you and your blessing and your goodness in this. And for others, this topic, uh, there's just so much pain and frustration and disappointment and hurt that surrounds it. Father, I pray you would meet us wherever we are, that you would help us today as uh, we are silly and we use levity 
as we are serious and are challenged by your truth, that you would meet us as we are encouraged as well, that you would bring healing and hope where there is no healing and where there is no hope. That you would be a God who redeems, a God who calls us into something better, a God who blesses. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as, as we get started today, there, there are some preliminary things that we, we need to discuss. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can open up there. You can pull it up on your device. We're going to have it up on the screen. Um, but just by way of preliminaries, um, with any message that, that we deliver here at Faith, there, there are different kinds of research. There is scholastic, there's academic research that goes into a message. There's practical, hands-on um, uh, research that goes into a message. And with today's message, the, the scholastic research, the academic research was really nothing any different. But can I just say how much I appreciated the practical research for this message? Like, there were times this week where my wife was like, what has gotten into you? And I'm like, honey, this is for church. Trust me, all right? Um, seriously, though. Uh, with, this, with this message, in Proverbs 5, Solomon's going to speak to the, this idea of sexuality. And as Solomon does, Solomon is, is writing from a perspective where he's, he's, he's basing what he's going to say to us today off of other ideas that the Scripture has already spoken about how sexuality works from a biblical perspective. Solomon is going to base these ideas of chapter 5 on the foundation of other things that the biblical writers have set up to this point and will continue to say after this point. And to best understand what Solomon is saying... You really need to understand the perspective that he's writing from. And we don't have time to go through all the passages and unpack all of the ideas fully, but just I want to help you wrap your brain around a few of them because it'll better help you understand what he's going to say to us in chapter 5. So, as Solomon begins, Solomon is writing from the perspective that sex was God's idea and that sex is a good thing. You, when you read the creation narrative, and you do the theological work. You can't help but realize that God invented sexuality. Sexuality is not a result of the fall. All right? And that when God invented it, he said, this was good. Like, God, in, God invented this. And like the parts of our anatomy that serve no other purpose than to create pleasure in the midst of intimacy, this is God's idea. You didn't have the devil, like, off in the background, you know, making, you know, dirty body parts out of mud and then affixing them to, you know, humanity's anatomy when, when God wasn't looking. No, this was God's idea, and he said, this is good. You didn't have God in heaven going, you know, seeing Adam and Eve, you know, he discovers them being intimate, and he's like, oh my God, wait, that's me, I can't say that. What are you guys doing down there? Stop that. No. Instead, you probably had something along the lines of God elbows an angel and says, I came up with that one. This was my idea, and this is good. Now, while Solomon writes from this perspective, he also writes from the perspective that God has placed guardrails on our sexuality. That God designed sexuality, but he designed it to be experienced within a specific context. 
Now again, you see this in the creation narrative. You see this throughout the Old Testament. You see this in the teachings of Jesus. And then you see it again in the teachings of the apostles. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, the message remains consistent. God designed sex. He said it was good. But he he designed it to be experienced within the context of marriage between one biological man and one biological female. And the scriptures are incredibly clear. Anytime we step over that guardrail and we live into sexuality in a way that doesn't reflect that, we are outside of God's design for our lives. And then finally, Solomon writes from the perspective that sex is an incredibly powerful force in our lives. He, he has this idea And and again, you see this throughout the scriptures, that sex will impact us emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually, like nothing else in our world will. And for Solomon, this isn't just an academic pursuit. See, Solomon knew these things to be true, not just because they were written, but he saw all of these things work themselves out in the life of his father, David. And so in light of these truths, Solomon writes Proverbs 5. He writes to his son. He writes to you and to me. And as he writes, he gives us two warnings and one encouragement. Two warnings. Everybody say warning. And one encouragement. Everybody say encouragement. And so we're just going to take them one at a time. We're going to walk through them and unpack them. So as he begins, he begins with his first warning. He says this. He says, for the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Now, before we unpack the warning, really want to quickly just point something out that some folks will try and use to write off what Solomon is saying here, and I would contend it really does not make much sense. It is true, Solomon, some folks will be like, well, hey, you said Solomon's writing to his son. And you go back to verses 1 and 2, he is very clearly writing to one of his sons. And some folks will go, well, this isn't for me then, because I'm not a son, right? And then he's writing about adultery, and some people will say, well, hey, the things that I'm doing, they're not with married people, and I'm not married people, so this doesn't apply to me. Now, we dealt with this a little bit last weekend when we talked about alcohol. Listen. Just because Solomon is writing to his son and he's writing about the activity of adultery, you need to understand, he is doing so to put the conversation in some kind of context. But what he is saying does not apply to that context alone. What Solomon is saying, it doesn't just apply to young men. You can't be like, well, I'm an old man. Well, it doesn't doesn't apply to me. No. What he's saying applies to, to young men, to old men, to young women, to old women. If you are a human being and you have a propensity for sexuality, what he is saying applies to you. And just because he talks about the guardrail hopping activity of adultery, that doesn't mean that's the only thing he has in mind. What he is saying applies to any activity outside of God's design for sexuality, whether you're talking about adultery or Netflix and chill or friends with benefits or, you know, one night stand or this long relationship I have with somebody I'm not married to. Anything outside of God's design, 
marriage. One biological female, one biological male. Solomon's talking about that. So, with that in mind, what's the warning that Solomon's giving here? Very simply, it's this. He's saying, hey, there's a lot of false advertising going on out there. Solomon's saying, listen, on the front end of the advertisement, you're told it's going to be sweet as honey. This is going to be smoother than oil. And to some degree, it will be. But it will never be to the extent that it's promised. And then you're going to get all kinds of stuff that was never advertised. It's going to be bitter. It's going to be sour. It's going to cut you. It will bring death to bear in some way as sure as the grave. And again, as Solomon says this, this isn't just academic He knows this to be true because of what took place in his father's life. If you're familiar with the story of David, you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. And you know how one night David is standing on the roof of his house and he looks out and he sees this woman bathing. It's Bathsheba. And when he does... All likelihood, all of the physiological things go off inside of David. You know, his chest constricts and his, his pulse quickens and his respiration goes up and his pupils dilate. And as the physiological things are taking place, the advertisements start playing in his mind. Ooh, she looks good. Ooh, she's taking a bath. She probably smells good. And if, and if I could just be with her, it would be all night long amazing. The, the, the physical urges, it would satisfy them. The, 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 the relationship thing that's just not right in my life, this would make it better. This is going to do everything I am hoping for. And David liked what was advertised. And so David sends for Bathsheba, and she comes, and they have an encounter. And to some degree, it was sweet and it was smooth. It was good enough that they conceived. But I'm telling you right now, as David is with Bathsheba for the first time, and anyone who's had a first-time encounter knows this to be true, it was not all it was advertised to be. I promise you, as David was with Bathsheba for the first time, he was nowhere near as smooth and debonair as he imagined he would be. As David is with Bathsheba for the first time, she was not as responsive to his every move as he dreamed she would be. And as David is with Bathsheba for the first time, I'm just saying, it did not last as long as he hoped it was going to. It's just the way it works. It's a reality. There was a degree of sweet as honey and smooth as oil, but it was not what it was advertised to be. And then David experienced all kinds of things that were not advertised. When it was done, David has this overwhelming sense of regret when the physical part of him stops overriding his brain. And David has all this guilt that he now has to deal with as he recognizes he just betrayed Uriah, one of his most loyal followers. And David gets to experience panic as he gets word that Bathsheba's pregnant. See, Solomon's saying to us in, in his first warning, he's like, listen, I get stepping over the guardrail. It is so tempting. Doing this your way instead of God's way, it can seem so appealing. Don't go there. 
Don't go there. There's a lot of false advertising out there. It's not going to deliver anywhere near as much as it promised. And you're going to get things you were never told about on the front end of the deal. So that's his first warning. His second warning comes in what he says next. He says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. With the second warning, Solomon's basically telling us, hey, there is all kinds of price gouging going on out there. Solomon's saying, listen, you can, you can step over the guardrail. It's your choice. But if you do, it will cost you. It will cost you more than you ever imagined. It will cost you more than you ever want to pay. And again, Solomon is saying this because he knew this to be true from his father's life. David has that encounter with Bathsheba, and it cost him. It, it cost him his integrity. Again, as he betrays one of his most loyal followers by seducing his wife. As he then tries to lie to that man and manipulate that man, and when none of that works, he has that man murdered. It costs David spiritually. You can't do those things and have it like be good for your relationship with God. And it costs David's family. David and Bathsheba, the whole thing blows up, and Nathan comes and prophesies and says to David, because of what you've done, the sword is never going to depart from your house. Two of David's sons lose their lives. One of his daughter, daughters is assaulted and her mind is never the same. His relationship with his children from that point forward is strained at best and he almost loses the kingdom. All of that and more can be tracked back to that one night. Now here's the thing. We know this is true. We know that there's price gouging going on out there. Because many of us, maybe our story isn't the same as David's, maybe the, the bill didn't look the same, but many of us, we have lived this ourselves. But some of us, we could tell the story of, of the, the interaction, the relationship that we had that led to us being a single parent. And yes, we love that kid and no, we wouldn't send them back for nothing, but we had no idea how hard parenting on our own was going to be. Or some of us, we, we, we could share the story of the affair and how it cost us our self-respect and how it cost us our marriage and how it turned our kids' lives upside down. Or some of us, we could share the story about that relationship we had before we got married and we thought we got away with it until we had to disclose that to the person we wanted to spend the rest of our life with. And we could see what it cost them and now we carry comparisons into that relationship we wish we never had. Or some of us, we could share the story of how we immersed ourselves in pornography and we thought, when I get married, this will all go away. 
And we fail to realize that putting on fancy clothes and exchanging rings and vows in front of a preacher, that doesn't change the, the habitual patterns in my life. And now our spouse is devastated by our digital infidelity. See, Solomon is saying, hey, you can step over this line, but don't do it. It'll cost you more than you ever imagined, more than you ever wanted to pay. There's price gouging out there. Now, before we, we look at Solomon's encouragement, I just want to stop and think. Why does it work like this? Why when we step out of God's design do we experience the false advertising and the price gouging? And th th there are a number of reasons, one of which though is this. When, when we decide, you know what, I'm going to do sex my way rather than God's way, whether we mean to or not, whether we realize it or not, we actually separate sexuality from the purposes that God designed it for. When we say, okay, here's, here's the, the scriptural mandate, the scriptural direction, I got a better idea. We, whether we want to or not, mean to or not, we separate our sexuality from the very purposes God meant us to enjoy in it. So for example, one of God's purposes for sexuality is pleasure. Again, there are parts of your anatomy, they serve no other purpose than to bring pleasure during intimacy. When we do sex our way rather than God's, we actually reduce the amount of pleasure we will experience, which I get is so counterintuitive. In the culture that we live in today, we're told, you know, forget about this sex for marriage thing. Do this with as soon as you can with as many people as you can, any way you can. But what you want, that's what's going to make you happy. And yet, studies continue to show us that the people who have the most sex and are happiest with their sex lives are people who are married in committed, faithful relationships. Monogamous, faithful marriages. Not single people and not cohabitators. And you know why that is? It's because sex is better with practice. Yes, you heard that right. In fact, go ahead and look at the person next to you and tell them. I'm kidding. All right. Here's the deal, though. Sex is a team sport, and it gets better with practice. But the practice has to be with the same person. What, what, what works with one person, what one person desires, what translates with one person, it doesn't necessarily work or translate with another person. But you take two people and you put and keep them on the same team and they can get good at this. That's what a committed, lifelong marriage provides you with. So this year, my wife and I are going to be celebrating 31 years, all right? You can find her after church and just be like, I can't believe you endured that for three decades, right? 31 years. I am telling you right now, the sex we had in the first year in our marriage doesn't hold a candle to the sex we have now. And all you young people are like, you're old. How's that possible? I ain't dead yet, all right? I am the beneficiary of 30 years of diligent practice. All right, amen? Anyway, I don't know. Can I say it, amen, to that? Yes, you can, all right. When, when we do sex our way instead of God's way, we actually separate it from the purpose of pleasure and we rob ourselves. 
Or God designed, one of God's purposes for sexuality was to create oneness, unity in the relationship. When, when we go, you know, forget about this sex is for marriage thing. We're going to do this now when we want to, with whom we want to. We actually rob ourselves of that. You see, when we do sex our way instead of God's way, whether we mean to or not, whether we realize it or not, we reduce sexuality to just a physical act. And when you understand sexuality from a biblical perspective, it is so much more than that. Now, we've talked about this. Like, we've talked about how in the book, The Song of Songs, there are three primary Hebrew words, all of which gets translated as love, but all of which capture a different component of what God designed sexuality to be. And so there's one word that gets translated as love, and it represents the physical component. There's, listen, nobody's denying that sex is physical in nature, but it's more than that. It also uses another word for love, and this word, it, it is, we, we translate it as love. It is meant to capture the relational component, the friendship piece that this is meant to be. And then there's a third Hebrew word that we translate as love, and it is meant to capture the covenantal commitment that is supposed to come with sexuality. And so from a biblical perspective, sexuality is, yes, it is a physical celebration of a growing emotional relationship resting on the foundation of a lifelong covenant. Now, when you have that, here's what you can have. You can have two people who know the good, the bad, and the ugly about each other, and nobody's going anywhere. You can have two people who can put down the masks and be real and be known and know the other person. Sex isn't just a, a, a coming together of two bodies. Instead, it's the mingling of souls. There is an intense unity that can come out of that. But when I do sex my way instead of God's, I actually separate my sexuality from the purposes that God had in mind. You see, when Solomon gives us these warnings, he's not trying to rob you. He's trying to help you. And for those who will heed these warnings, there's, there is blessings from God that Solomon talks about in the encouragement that he offers next. So let's look at it. As Solomon seeks to encourage us, he says this. He says, drink water from your own cistern. Now Solomon's being all you know, poetic here, and he's using you know, water and cistern as a euphemism for marriage and sexuality. So he's like, he's like listen, get the water from your well only, right? Keep the sexuality in the context of your marriage. And then he talks about the kind of things that we might experience from God as we do so. He says, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now, anybody who will tell you, like, God's anti-sex or the God of the Bible is just this prude who's trying to ruin your life, they don't know what the Bible has to say, and they haven't taken time to do the theological work. There are four key terms that Solomon uses here when you do the word studies and you understand what these words mean in the original language and the context that they are given in. You can't call God a prude. You just can't. For example, he will say, let your fountain be blessed. 
This idea of blessed in the original language in this context, he's saying, I want you to know something in your physical intimacy that is so good that you can't help but think the favor of God is resting on my life. Or he will say, rejoice in the wife of your youth. This word rejoice in the original language, in this context, he's saying, hey, I want you to know something so intense, so good, it brings you so much joy and excitement that it is almost visible to the people around you. Other people are going to look at you and they're going to be like, you got some kind of glow about you. What is up with that? And you'll be like, wouldn't you like to know? Or he says, may her breast satisfy you at all times. This word satisfy here, it speaks to frequency. In this context, Psalm is saying, I want you two to have as much as you can stand. And then finally he says, be exhilarated always with her love. This word exhilarated in the original language, it's talking about levels of passion that are so strong it would make you stagger. So for example, a few years back when I was on staff at another church, um, our daughter was still in our house. We had one out, one to go, right? So I dropped my daughter off at youth group and I'm sitting in the parking lot getting ready to turn left onto Warren Road and head home and I text my wife. I say, you know, hey, Beck and Amanda, you know, they're, they're a youth group. It's just you and me home tonight. Empty nesters for the evening, right? My wife texts me back. Oh, should I be naked when you get home then? That's the exhilaration Solomon's talking about here, people. I set a land speed record getting home that night. You can still go out to Warren Road to this day, touch the pavement, and it's hot from my tires. Okay, we need to take this off the screen because you're not going to hear another word I say. I thank you. Again, God is not trying to rob you. He's got something good in mind. And when we ignore his warnings, we rob ourselves. And when we heed his warnings, he has blessing and rejoicing and satisfying and exhilarating in mind for you and me. So, to wrap this up, I want to speak to different folks because different people are in different places. Some of us here today, we're in a spot where God's got the guardrails up and we've chosen to live within them. And if that is you, I want to say to you, yes! In a world that is forever pushing you to cross over that guardrail, I want to celebrate with you that you're doing this God's way. And if that is you, I want to encourage you, take the steps you need to take to stay there. Figure out what, what, are, the, what are the biblical standards. What do, I, what do I need to do? What kind of boundaries do I need to set up to keep myself there? Who are the people that I need to talk to and share that with and give permission to speak into my life and into my world? If you're doing this God's way right now, I want to celebrate that with you and encourage you to do what you need to to stay there. Now, some of us are there. Some of us, if we're being honest, we've stepped over that guardrail. And we're doing this our way or our culture's way instead of God's way. 
And if that is you, I just want to say to you, you don't have to stay there. This part of your world can change. The God who created sexuality can bring forgiveness and healing and restoration to this part of your life. If we will turn from our sin and turn to God, he will forgive us and he will cleanse us. If you're here today, some of us are here today, some of us are watching online today, and we know, we already know right now what it is we need to do. Some of us are here, some of us are watching online, and it's complicated enough at this point, we don't. We know we need to do something, we don't know what it is. And if that's you, please, get with one of our staff, get with one of our leaders. We would love to help you try and figure out how to navigate this. And then finally, there are some of us who are here who are watching online. We are living within these guardrails, but this is foreign to us. Either because of a history of abuse or because of something physiologically that's not right or because of the, the level of dysfunction in our relationship right now, we're doing the right thing, but we haven't experienced this. And if that's you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what led to that. I'm sorry for what you're going through. I'm sorry for the pain and the frustration that's part of your life in an area that was meant to be otherwise. And I would encourage you, seek help if you haven't yet and stick with it if you have. Because again, the God who invented sexuality is a God of healing and hope. And where it seems painful and hopeless now, it can change. Would you stand with me, church? After David jumped that guardrail and blew his life and his family up, he prayed this prayer. He said, God, have mercy on me according to your faithful love. Because your love is so tender and kind, wipe out my lawless acts. Wash away all the evil things I have done. Make me pure from my sin. You know how God answered that prayer? He said, yes. God had mercy on David. He washed him clean and he forgave him. And what God did for David, God will do for me and God will do for you. And so as we continue today, we're, we're going to pray. And if you need the forgiveness of God in your life because you stepped over that guardrail, or you need the forgiveness of God in a different area of your life, or you, just, you need the forgiveness of God in your life as a whole, I want to invite you just to pray silently with me as we pray this prayer that David prayed. Father, today, we just come to you as people in need. Some of us, Father, we just, we confess 
Now, we've done this our culture's way. We've done this our way. But we haven't done it yours. Father, have mercy on us according to your faithful love. Father, be kind and wipe out our lawless acts. Wash away all the evil that we have done. Make us pure. Forgive us, please. Not because of what we've done or what we deserve, but because of Jesus. Because he lived the life we should have lived. Because he died to make right what we could not make right ourselves. In this moment, we want to put our hope and our faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen.